The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Jill Desis, who joins us, Bloomberg China EcoGov editor. For the big meetings this week, the two sessions. So we've talked a lot about this generally, Jill. Let me ask you something a little more specific here. Can we expect a kind of doubling down on the commitment from Chinese policymakers uh, to become self-sufficient in some key areas like AI and semiconductors and high tech? Well, yes, Brian, I think the one thing to keep in mind with this uh, National People's Congress that we're gearing up for here is that a lot of these policy positions were likely charted out in December when key leaders met and kind of huddled together and laid out what the big priorities would be for 2024. We know that, um, you know, economic sustainability is certainly a major target for this year. We know that uh, they really, really want to place a big emphasis on growth. But a lot of those, you know, mid to long term goals for China also rely on becoming more self-sufficient, as you said, in particular areas like technology. We've seen, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, um, a bigger push toward um, you know investments in electric vehicles, for example, or renewable energies, advanced technologies, those kinds of things. So I imagine that is going to continue to play a role in top policymakers thinking as they sort of, you know, announce this big agenda for this year. Of course, um, the, the big balance, the tricky balance here for them is going to be uh, balancing those priorities against this need to also make sure that economic growth is sustainable for the course of the year. So, Jill, aside from espousing a lot of nationalism, which would be expected, I'm wondering whether leadership is going to make any effort to be empathic to say to the population overall, hey, we know that it's been challenging. We know that you're having a tough time believing in what we're doing. Maybe maybe that's an extreme example, but at least to kind of mirror the reality a little bit to saying, yeah, things are tough. We're on the case. Well, Doug, I think that at this point, um, it would actually be a bit of a surprise if they go into a ton of details <laughs> about economic challenges, um, to say the least. Um, but um, yeah, look, I think that, um, you know, we've seen some measures. That, I mean, you, you know how this goes. The, the Beijing has not necessarily, um, you know, ever been incredibly transparent or candid about a lot of the ways in which they outline policy. A lot of it is more um, you know, kind of plays out in actions that they take. For example, uh, when we think back to just, you know, this big multi-trillion dollar stock route that we've been through within the past, you know, within the past 18 months or so, and then a lot of the conversations or, you know, a lot of the discussion around that within uh, January, February, what we saw um, in China in terms of reaction to that and acknowledgement of how much that was, um, you know, an, an issue uh, within the economy, within the stock markets was, you know, this big giant, um, uh, change at the top, um, you know, firing the market regulator and replacing with someone else. We saw a lot of, um, you know, language from Premier Lee Chong and others saying, you know, talking about the need to help. So I'd imagine that it would come in something in the form of something like that that feels, uh, you know, a little bit more 
um, you know, opaque than otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I was just chuckling as well because, you know, it's hard to think of Xi Jinping as uh, an empathetic leader, <laughs> uh, you know, walking walking through the neighborhoods, you know, I feel your pain, I'm here to help. The uh, Bill Clinton. But, but, you know, yeah, exactly. But, but actually, I think Doug was spot on. I think in some way, that's what investors are hoping for, that we'll get some sort of mea culpa, in a sense, from policymakers that, uh, that you know, they, they want to make some changes. They want to make life a little bit easier for, for consumers. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, we've seen a bounce in property here in Hong Kong after we removed a lot of these restrictions. Now, they've done something of the sort in China, but maybe not quite as much across the board. Can we expect pr- perhaps a, a few strong moves on property? I look, uh, Brian. I think that I think that investors ultimately want a lot of things out of the Chinese government that they're not necessarily going to receive. And you know, I mean, we've seen that optimism play out time and time again over the past couple of years, only to be met with some disappointment. I will say, when it comes to the property sector, I'm not really sure that you would see massive amounts of new, you know, um, ma- you know, massive support for the property sector, or a bunch of you know unconventional measures to sort of um, help move things along. But we have seen, I will, I, I will acknowledge that we have seen Beijing, uh, you know, take some measures already that at least, um, you know, it imply that they are thinking about new ways in which uh, they need to, you know, sort of transform the sector. I mean, there's a new housing model that Beijing has been promoting fairly recently, involving building more affordable housing, renovating urban villages. Um, that could be something that comes up at this NPC. Uh, we've seen them also tap into different forms of funding via policy banks um, to try to facilitate uh, a little bit more investment for the sector. So, you know, through the through the People's Bank of China. So there are some measures there. I'm just not really sure that we're going to see anything sort of radically new announced at this particular mm. uh, yeah. So, Jill, when it comes to government spending, do we know what we're likely to hear in terms of a deficit? You know, the, the amount of GDP um, that would, I guess, be sacrificed for uh, for a deficit? Yes, this is a really interesting one, uh, Doug, and I think that probably one of the things that I'm most keen to look out for at the NPC this time around. So uh, usually the government, or like historically the government hasn't really liked to see that fiscal deficit ratio, um, so GDP rise above 3%. That's been kind of a, a fairly fixed line um, for the government to consider. We did see that change, though around the middle of last year, this was around October or so, where they made a very unusual mid-year revision to the budget to essentially raise it to about 3.8% as they were, um, you know, looking at, um, you know, issuing a bit more sovereign debt, sort of help with some infrastructure projects. Now, the size of that, um, uh, the the amount actually, uh, you know, issued in debt wasn't massive by any stretch, but I think that it did signal something of a sea change in this philosophy about how much the central government actually has to help a lot of these debt-ridden local governments with uh, with, with spending and such. Um, a lot of economists are thinking that at this point for the MPC, we might actually see them just chart the year, start out saying, you know, maybe we'll we'll be willing to bend the rules a bit on that 3% line. Maybe we see something like a 3.3%. Fiscal yeah. deficit ratios. Um, so I think that that's that that's a really good one to look out for. I'll throw you a little bit of a curveball. Uh, demographics. Uh, is there a chance that we might see something along the lines of incentivizing young couples to have uh, more children? Oh gosh, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think that um, you know certainly there's been a lot of challenges to 
you know, population growth within China. We, you know, obviously saw India surpass China as the world's most populous country. We've seen, you know, a lot of concerns about falling birth rates and the fact that, you know, the removal of uh, one-child policies several years ago and, and some other incentives haven't really done much to move the needle. Um, I'm not, I wonder whether that would actually come out of the NPC. It's a good question because what we have seen in the past from uh, China is, um, you know, some more iterative uh, uh, policies announced um, on sort of an ad hoc basis. Uh, I think last year, maybe the year before, uh, there were some announcements to try to encourage people to have more children, whether in the form of incentives or breaks on taxes and stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure whether that's going to come out of the MPC, but I do think that that is pretty top of mind for policymakers because of a lot of those concerns about uh, long-term impacts that declining populations and lower birth rates can have on the economy. Yeah, family for formation and the rest. Very quickly, Jill, 30 seconds. What about military spending? Yes, I think that that's another one to look out for. I mean, look, uh, national security is top of mind also. I mean, there's many things that are top of mind, I feel, for uh, for the uh, Chinese government. But we've seen under Xi Jinping, obviously, much more interest in uh, building up national security. We'll see if that translates into more military funding. Jill, thank you. Jill Desis, Bloomberg China EcoGov editor. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Joining us in our studio is now Ben Sharples, Bloomberg Energy and Commodities Editor. Ben, so once again, we see a little bit of, of a back and forth between the U.S. and China. This is yet another one. Um, there's something like 360 million barrels of oil in the uh, SPR. Not sure that the million barrels that, that China threw um, through its uh, subsidiary Unipec America that um, uh, that. Uh, Sinopec bought would make that much of a difference. Is this more symbolic or is this quite serious, uh, a development like this? Uh, I think you're right, uh, Brian. It's more symbolic. It's politics at play here. Um, point scoring, if you if you like. You know, the, the White House pointed out that by law, the Energy Department is required to sell to the highest bidder, even if it's a foreign country, a foreign country, yeah, like, like China. So you, you've had, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, they sold barrels to PetroChina, which is one of the biggest uh, producers or consumers in China itself. And uh, at the moment, the the Energy Department is actually trying to fill the SPR. There was a huge release in 2022 by the Biden administration to tame prices following the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's not an actual, uh, they're not trying to sell barrels at the moment, they're trying to, to fill it, refill it. It's near a 40-year low. So uh, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, early, more, uh, early on. It's, it is symbolic. It's, mm. it's politics at play. In the meantime, when I think of China demand, I think of places like Iran. I think of places like Russia supplying uh, the, the, the Chinese system. Are those uh, sources still intact? Uh, most certainly. Uh, China is a very opportunistic buyer and they look for the cheapest barrels. And for those countries like Russia and Iran that uh, that have the barrels, uh, that have uh, a range of sanctions on them, China is the logical place. Uh, there is a little bit at play at the moment that uh, Russian barrels are getting a little bit cheaper than Iranian barrels. So uh, there's almost a, a, a sort of a head-to-head -head sort of um, scenario going on there. So China is getting barrels even cheaper from from both those uh, those outlets so yeah if uh, you know if you want to sell barrels and you're selling it cheap then China is a place to go 
So I think I mentioned uh, the MPC meetings because we'll get the growth target uh, somewhere around 5% is what's expected. Uh, I think a lot of people would be curious about how strong the demand is for oil in China and whether or not that's a decent barometer of economic growth there. And we know that China produces its own oil through scenic offshore and PetroChina onshore and such, but they still import a lot of oil. Uh, how strong is the, is the demand in China? I mean, well, China is the, the barometer uh, in some sense of oil demand. It is the biggest importer in the world of oil and uh, and what's happening in the property sector there, the economy is is of great concern for, for producers and, and people and sellers of oil. Uh, you had CNPC, the largest energy, China's largest energy producer last week, uh, giving its uh, its lowest forecast in, in around a de- decade for oil demand this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, caveat being that it's coming off a high base in 2023, but uh, you know a soft economy, uh, the transition to electric vehicles, it's it's eating into to oil demand for China at the moment. So it is cause of concern. And you can see that being reflected in prices at the moment. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you make that point, because uh, obviously this week we're going to learn a lot more on economic policy as the National People's Congress gets underway. But to the point about green technology and sustainable sources of uh, energy, I would imagine as time goes on, China is going to become less and less a big buyer on, on the global market of, of crude and and distillates. Is, is that a fair statement? Uh, that's a fair statement. But you also have to remember that China, uh, energy security is a big thing for China. So they will still keep buying and still still keep buying crude to process into, into fuels. Uh, so there will still be an element there. But if you look at it now and the transition, especially to uh, electric vehicles, it's, it's huge in China and it is displacing uh, things like gasoline demand. Uh, you've had uh, uh, the CNPC saying that uh, gasoline demand in China may peak this year. There's been a few forecasts over, over the last couple of years of the peak. They've called it early, but it's certainly looking like that gasoline demand uh, is starting to wane in China. Ben, the other big story this morning on the oil front was OPEC Plus extending its oil cuts uh, until the end of June. Speaking of symbolism, I mean, what is the gap between what they say they're doing and, you know, how religious are these cuts with the actual output? Well, uh, you know, the devil is in the detail there. We have to wait uh, to see the numbers, the monthly numbers that come out from OPEC to see whether they are adhering to it. Um, it is. It was largely expected. The market uh, has some problems with China demand at the moment. It has some problems with non-OPEC supply, especially U.S. shale supply increasing. So there are those elements where it is putting pressure on the price. And you saw the reaction in prices today. It didn't do much, right? Yeah. It hasn't done much at all. And that's largely because the market is expecting it. And the, you know, oil has traded in a, in a narrow, tight range of about $10 a barrel this is, year. Is the market just saturated now? The market is, you know, it's it's what what the market is looking out for is is probably uh, the question that a lot of people are asking. If you look at prompt time spreads, it is tightening. It is showing a tightening in the market. But uh, usually uh, when OPEC release, uh, says something like this, announces something like this, you get a strong reaction, but we're not seeing it this time. So there is some caution in the market at the moment. Are, are most of the refineries in China set up to, to work with sweet crude or sour crude? 
Uh, look, you know, the, the Chinese uh, are very good at, at adapting to uh, whatever sources that they, they can get. You know, you've got the teapots, you've got a lot of the, the big new uh, flash uh, refineries that are uh, huge in, in terms of global perspective. So, you know, whatever crew that they need, they, they can adjust and they can work uh, to, to process it because they are opportunistic buyers and they use a lot of crew. Smart Money now, um, what's it saying for WTI a barrel? It's at 80, right on the button, just about uh, over the course of this year. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tough to say. It's it's tough to say. Yeah, uh, I if you look at the time spreads and you take that as a measure, the market it is showing the market tightening. So I would say prices are going up. Mm. How far? How quickly is the big question here? Because there are competing factors. There's headwinds, there's tailwinds. There's China, there's non-OPEC supply. There's also the geopolitics in the Middle East that are, uh, are throwing up that element. So uh, if, I had to, if I had to make a call, I'd say it's going up, but it's going up slowly. Maybe 80 to 85, something like that. Yeah. Uh, all right, Ben, thanks very much. Uh, real pleasure. Ben Sharples, Bloomberg Energy and Commodities Editor. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. We're joined by Minxin Pei, political scientist and fellow at Claremont McKenna College and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. So, Minxin, it's no small thing, really, to say that uh, the economy will be the top priority. But I think a lot of investors would like to see, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, Do you agree with that notion that we put there at the end of the story about basically economists are expecting, you know, growth friendly stuff, but, you know, no real big statement? Yeah, I think you're basically right, because uh, we're going to hear a bunch of rhetoric uh, trying to uh, boast the people's confidence in the leadership. But uh, we're going to, uh, uh, such empty talk uh, uh, is not going to do uh, any anything to make people confident about the Chinese economic prospects. Uh, what we need uh, is really a set of very specific policies. I think this is where the Chinese government will be challenged during the next 10 days when the annual session of the parliament is actually going on. Minchin, do you think that there will be an honest assessment of how weak the economy is right now? Will leadership kind of admit the challenges? Yeah, it's interesting. I think they will do themselves a favor by being honest. But this is unlikely. They're going to put out a brave face uh, to put the spin on the economy. And uh, they've been doing this uh, for the last year, frankly. Uh, But the market has not turned. So uh, I think we all hope they will be honest, but it's unlikely to happen. Minxin, you said that what we need or what they need is very specific policies. And they believe that they have been coming out with very specific policies. And in fact, it seems like investors are saying it's too specific. What we need is more muscle. (laughs) And I guess you're suggesting it's not likely to happen. Yeah, well, my expectations are very low. Of course, I would like to be surprised on 
the upside. I think what they'd be doing is sort of, uh, sort of dribble, uh, sort of uh, dripping a little bit of stimulus, cutting reserve rates, cutting some interest rates. Uh, they are not putting real money, which is fiscal spending, on the line. I think what is really needed is fiscal spending. We're not talking about a huge package, but say two additional percent uh, going to the pockets of consumers rather than building extra infrastructure or extra real estate. Does that necessarily mean that the government will allow the budget deficit to increase in a meaningful way? Yes, I think if they want to uh, stimulate the economy, if they really want to sort of change people's perception of gloom and doom, they have to incur a much bigger budget deficit. Otherwise, if they go forward uh, with anemic growth, the budget deficit will continue to grow because right now they do have a budget deficit of something like at least nominally 4 uh, to 5%, real term probably close to 8%, which is huge. If the growth goes up, the budget deficit will actually come down. So we'll probably hear from Lee Chung, you know, these types of words that the economy is the priority and uh, that, you know, they'll be pulling out all the stops to, to get it moving. Uh, but do you think that Xi Jinping himself uh, has the same sort of commitment to the economy? And in, is there any sort of vehicle from which he can, you know, make those comments or statements? Oh, yes. I think this is where uh, the next few days will be really of interesting time to watch because according to protocol or custom, she is going to visit several regional delegations and he'll uh, give a speech. Uh, he's not going to give a long speech at the plenary session, but he's going to uh, give uh, a speech at regional sessions and we'll see how what he says about economy uh, and what he says is really sort of going to be uh, sort of a put on the microscope. One of the things I think leadership has been challenged with is abandoning the old-style playbook in favor of something that's a little bit more contemporary. Speaking of President Xi, one of the mantras that he has been issuing over the last year and a half at least is this notion of high-quality economic development. Do you think that's going to remain key? Is that a critical theme? Oh, yes. This is the mantra. This is the slogan. But... Uh you know, his understanding of high quality differs from a lot of other people's understanding of high quality. What he means uh, by high quality is high-tech manufacturing. But that is a small segment of the Chinese economy. I think real high quality is overall productivity, rising income across the board. That is true high quality, but that, uh, that is unlikely to be the government's policy. Minshin, if that language isn't right, uh, you know, let's pivot to what's the kind of language that global investors would need? Because, you know, th there's really been a sense here of late that investors are kind of uh, detaching from China. They're giving up to a certain degree. You know, you just hear it in comments from strategists and, and uh, you know, outside the country in the West of, of people talking about uh, the attraction of the Chinese economy is getting less and less and less. What's the type of language that policymakers would need to use to change that? Yeah, I think uh, so three kinds of language will probably be welcomed by investors. First is a, a much less emphasis on security. Because if you talk mm. about security, then 
people get scared. <laughs> and second, a much more emphasis on the private sector, because so far the government has been sort of pouring money into the state sector. And, and third is a much more welcoming attitude to foreign investors, opening up sectors of the economy. I think if they do this, uh, I, uh, the perception of China's le- uh, leadership and its economic policy will change. What about the government's uh, commitment to increase military spending? What are you expecting to hear on that front? I think probably they're going to announce of a, a high uh, single-digit increase as last year's, around 7 to 8%. The, uh, they can no longer sort of do double-digit increases, but given the overall uh, security environment, uh, they will have to sort of keep up the pace of military spending. You know, here in Hong Kong, Minxin, we have kind of like a little microcosm of, uh, of studying the Chinese economy uh, through visitors here. Now, around the time of the Chinese New Year, there were tons and tons of mainland visitors here. Uh, but we noticed that, you know, they were not spending here and not staying in hotels for very long. Sometimes they're only coming on day trips. And, you know, if you go out on the trails, you'd see a lot of mainlanders out for hikes. But that means they're not shopping at, at Gucci and, <laughs> and Louis Vuitton. So when I asked you that question about, you know, what would foreign investors need to hear about the language? And I thought you gave an excellent answer. But it's really domestic investors and domestic consumers that are the yeah. most important to Chinese economy. What do they need to hear? I think they need to hear from the government something like this. We feel your pain and we're going to do something about it for real. Uh, So I think uh, a program, uh, as I uh, have written in Bloomberg, that uh, consumer voucher uh, program, every uh, person gets a thousand dollars, which can be applied to consumption. Uh, That kind of program will cheer people up because this uh, this would really put money in people's pocket, and they will start spending again. What about China's role on the world stage very quickly? Is it going to be uh, the role of the leadership here to, to acknowledge a more balanced approach with the rest of the world, or is the focus going to be more inward-looking? I think they have to be more inward-looking, <laughs> because uh, the, the time when they can actually spend money, waste money outside the borders of China is over. All right, Minxin, should be a big week. Uh, we hope to talk to you plenty over the next couple of weeks as we analyze what we get out of the two sessions, the CPPCC, which gets underway today, the NPC, which starts tomorrow, and, of course, the, the work report from Li Chang will be uh, quite interesting. Minxin Pei is political scientist and a fellow at Claremont McKenna College out in California and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen, and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? 
You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.